0: What's the first thing you're going to say to Corso the next time you get to see him in person?
1: I will I will go up to him and I and I will continue our annual annual tradition and I will get up close and I'll kind of whisper in you whisper in the, in the in the ear like like <laughs> who you got it was that we had, that was our little we have a little thing where like the first time we see each other on on Friday morning at our meeting we'll come up and he's like. Who, who do you got? Who, and it's like our little, like, for the country club type, like, who's your, who's your best bet of the week? So it'll, <laughs> it'll definitely be that.
0: Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Conor O'Gara. Will, I've made a few good decisions in my life, um, a few, emphasis on a few. I made the decision to ask my wife to be my girlfriend back in the day. Um, shout out um, to Indiana Daily Student, long time ago. Uh, I don't know if I've ever said this on these airwaves, but I was actually interviewing with a paper in a power five college town while I was in the process of getting this job as well. Um, that's something that I accepted nearly six years ago. Yes, was almost six years ago. That was a good decision. And don't you know it? I made the decision to hop aboard the must bus.
2: Yes, sir. Man,
0: it's been fun. It's been great. Didn't look like it at first. Go down 14 or 14 points, Colgate. The uh, the toothpaste jokes. They were they were flying. They were flying. A lot of people saying that I had jinxed arkansas and i was feeling bad because we come out with the with the video by the way if you don't subscribe saturday on south youtube channel you should totally do that and you'll see all of our great videos that you and john are able to put together for us great great stuff love love the bill clinton in the back of the must bus (laughs) um can't get enough of that but if you saw that that came out at i think it came out like two hours yeah about two hours before tip-off time and if that video wherein I jump on the Arkansas bandwagon had only lasted two hours, I, I think I would have had my my fandom card revoked forever. Uh, just any team that would not have worked. So thankfully, Justin Smith, Devo Davis, they saved my butt. Um, by the way, that Texas Tech game, I... I know I'm, I like I did it for uh, I did it for fun, but I, I was like legit nervous watching the Texas Tech game in, in the second round, and then at the end, so fired up. It helped that my wife also well, she has Arkansas winning it all, so even crazier. Lauren is even more on the must bus than I am apparently. I felt though getting on this bandwagon like that episode in the office where it's uh, it's the christening episode with jim and pam's baby little cc little diva cc um michael at the end of the episode he's like high-fiving the kids at, at the church they're going on the mission trip i think they're going to build schools for Jessica in mexico
1: <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> michael hops on the bus and he's like can i get a shirt and um i i felt like that with arkansas fans not to say that arkansas fans were like the kids on this mission trip um, who were, you know, what you would expect in that, that typecast role. But uh, I had Arkansas fans that really welcomed me with open arms. Shout out to all my Arkansas radio guys, Ty Richardson, John Neighbors, Phil Ellison, uh, Matt Smackdown Jenkins. The difference, though, is that unlike that episode of The Office, I am not begging the driver to stop an hour into the trip. As Nate Dogg once said, we're going to rock it till the wheels fall off. You did not think you were getting a Nate Dog reference in this opening, but you just did.
2: We went from Michael Scott to Nate Dog. What a flawless transition. Find me more
0: versatility. I don't think you can. I am so fired up slash terrified for Oral Roberts, though. And I, I don't think I'll ever say that sentence again. I don't, but I said it and it's out there. And I am just so all aboard the must bus. I know that last week in the open I sort of shot down the this is the best time of year thing last week when we were talking about that. But gosh, I I think I've watched 30 hours of basketball so far in that four-day stretch, and it has been incredible. Did you watch LSU Michigan? Yes, regrettably, yes. (laughs) Did that or did that not perfectly sum up the LSU experience for you.
2: Oh, yes. No, it was so perfect. And, yeah, I mean, it was just a chippy game. And that's a great example of I don't want to have anything invested in March Madness, like we talked Mm. about the other day. Because when you really get invested into a game and you're watching free throws and calls, it's terrible. But if you're just rooting for Florida's demise or if you're rooting for Texas's demise, it's house money, man.
0: It is. And and I, I legitimately watched that game without some, like, big, massive vested rooting interest. Obviously, it helps for business if LSU is is doing well and makes a deeper run into the tournament. And don't get me wrong, I would love to see a little bit more Cam Thomas, Trenton Wofford. But, you know, I, I thought that game was just great. And that was kind of the epitome of like why this tournament has been so good so far, because that's around a round of 32 game. And it felt like an Elite Eight game to me, at least. Alabama, Maryland, I mean, not necessarily fun from a down to the wire perspective, but when Bama got going like that, holy cow. They were, they were fun. They, they might just get that showdown with Gonzaga. I think Javon Quinterly and Justin Smith might... Yeah, they're my favorite players in college basketball right now. Like, Quinterly, some of the things that he does... I made the joke of, like, Kyrie Quinterly. And I realize he's not Kyrie Irving. I get that. But some of the stuff that he does to finish the rim, the guy is just... He's insane. Don't tell me, too, that he's not related to Javi Baez. I've never seen Javon Quinterly and Javi Baez in the same room. Go Google those pictures side-by-side. It's scary. The same breed of human right there. And also, obviously, really happy for Justin Smith, wrecking dudes in the NCAA tournament. First time. It's just been really, really fun to watch. Crazy, too, that both teams from the SEC who are in the Sweet 16 now get double-digit seeds that they face in order to get to the Elite Eight, not counting chickens early or anything like that, but would think that would bode really, really well. Um, All right. We have more hoops talk today. Plan for today, loaded, loaded pod. Just recorded an interview with Bear Felica, guy that you know very well from college. Game day, of course. Got to talk to him about a bunch of different Sweet 16 gambling tips. So if you're looking to make a little money this weekend or you just maybe have a genuine interest in that that stuff like I do, I promise that you'll enjoy that. I want to, of course, react to the big, big news of the day—probably big news of the week—in college football. George Pickens suffering a torn ACL in camp. I've also got some thoughts about Bo Nix and what some some of these things that we're hearing about him in camp with this new coaching staff, Brian Harson, Mike Bobo. Plus, we're talking March Madness heartbreak and figuring it out. But before we do all of that. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. I'm going to go off script here. I'm going to go off script. You know, I know the Saturday Football Newsletter that well, and I know that all you need to do is go into your browser and you type saturday.football. That's it, and it's gonna give you all of the headlines, everything that you could wanna know. Adam does such a great job of providing the commentary that you want to go along with some of your stuff, but at the same time, you're not gonna feel overwhelmed and like it's just all opinion-based. It's gonna be a great resource to be the informed college football fan and college basketball fan. You wanna be that smart person who's not just looking at your bracket. You wanna actually be able to provide something to the conversation and not just politely nod your head. Go subscribe to the Saturday Football newsletter saturday.football that's all you got to put into your browser there's no .com needed none of that all you do go to your browser saturday.football put in your email address i promise it'll be a decision that you will not regret George Pickens tours ACL on Wednesday brutal brutal news for Georgia fans i i really i was struggling to come up with the exact right words that i want to say about this because I assume that he's out for the season, but modern medicine, I don't know. Will Muschamp is, is now part of that coaching staff. He's of the belief that torn ACLs are like three-month injuries. So I don't know. You never know. But I'm going to, at least for the sake of this argument, it's kind of unfair to assume like George Pickens is going to make some miraculous comeback at the end of the season. I'm not rolling that out. Just don't want to necessarily factor that into all that. Don't think that's fair to put on a kid. Plus, he's in his pre-draft year. He could be done at Georgia. There's a possibility of that. I've got good news, though, because as brutal as that was to hear, and that's the word that I keep hearing over and over and over again, and understandably so with how talented George Pickens is, I've got good news, Georgia fans. As tough of a pill as that is to swallow, I am still super high on this offense, like super high. And I get it. Part of the fact that I am super high on them still could be also associated with me not being as high on George Pickens. As incredible as he is, especially down on the sideline where he makes that one-on-one grab. I don't know how many times we were going to be able to see in 2021 JT Daniels throw one up to him where he just has an extra five yards to go get and he dives and somehow makes a ridiculous play. That was probably going to happen at least six, seven times. That's not going to happen, at least for the time being. The route running though, for me, still wasn't great with Pickens. I think he disappears a little bit too much in these games and we know that he's been in kirby's doghouse in the past that's no secret We've seen the water bottle incident. Of course, we saw the fight against Georgia Tech and just kind of moments where you question if he's in that right mindset all the time. I don't think mentally he's built like some of these great SEC receivers that we've seen in the last couple of years. I don't think he approaches the game like Jamar Chase does. And Devontae Smith, I mean, he, this is a guy who used to tell defenses what coverages they were in. If you listen to Bruce Feldman, who was on Ryan Rosillo podcast, he was talking about that. I made the case that Traylon Burks was the SEC's top returning receiver when George Pickens was expected to be healthy and back. I realized I was probably in the minority by saying that. I also made the case that Kiris Jackson could end up being Georgia's most impactful wide receiver. It's tough, absolutely, because I-, I won't deny that Pickens has the highest ceiling in that offense. But is it a death blow to Georgia? I don't think it is. I think the biggest reason why I would say that is because I think the depth is there. This is a totally different scenario than the Jeremiah Holloman thing back in 2018, if you recall. He gets kicked off the team. He was expected to be wide receiver one. And that team all of a sudden is looking around like, oh, crap, we're without our top five receivers. No team has ever made the playoff without having their returning top five receivers. They were without all of them. So I think this year is just totally different. And I've already talked about kyrus Jackson. He's a member of the all-bang-the-drum team. I love the hands. I love what he can do out of the slot. I think that a year in that offense with JT Daniels, full offseason with him, I think that's going to be valuable. He's already the leader in that position group to begin with. I think he develops into a true third-down guy, much like he was for Stetson Bennett for the first part of last year, back when Stetson Bennett was a thing. Georgia fans know that the guy who has to step up It's Jermaine Burton, the guy who's going to be able to make that next step in year two and especially now without Pickens. Jermaine Burton has to be that guy. And I think he was better last year than what I was probably giving him credit for. They used him on the outside. They had him in the slot. We forget that while Pickens was the guy who, of course, took off in those last four games with JT Daniels, who was the guy who had that 197-yard, two-touchdown game in JT Daniels' debut? It was Jermaine Burton. I won't be surprised if he develops into that wide receiver one, a true wide receiver one, one of the best receivers in the SEC, because I just think the route running is exceptional. And he is somebody that JT Daniels is going to rely on a ton. He's the guy who emerged in that group of elite freshman receivers last year in that 2020 class. That also includes Arian Smith and Marcus Roseme jack Saint. If you recall, Smith has just that... Ridiculous speed. If you saw the Peach Bowl where he had that 55 yard catch, they just sent him straight down the field, like, go get it. And that's what he's going to be able to do. Not going to be a high volume guy, probably. But just the ability to do that is, is is important. I think it's pretty similar to what we've seen from Demetrius Robertson so far, and it's frustrating he's, as he's been, the former Cal transfer five-star guy, and he hasn't necessarily made the impact that Georgia fans were going to hope for. I think you just need a handful of guys in this offense now, in the way that it's actually built, where you just need those guys who can stretch the field. And just send them on a go route. It's not going to be flashy, but at least make the defense account for them. Even if that means just letting them run those routes and then letting Jackson Burton take some of that underneath stuff, I think that's a success successful formula. Rosamie Jackson is the guy who had the season ending injury in the the Florida game where he gets that that touchdown and as he's going into the end zone, just a brutal ankle dislocation, like the type of thing you don't want to see in the replay. Uh, But he was really starting to get used a lot more and he's going to be back by the fall. Same thing with Dominique Blaylock, another guy coming off an injury. Thought he was going to be UGA's number two last year. He had five touchdowns in 2019. People forget that. But then he suffered the knee injury at the end of the year. And then he comes back and actually re-injures his knee before the start of last season. But he's another one of these like, eh, all right, he's basically a year two guy. Add in another year two guy, Darnell Washington a tight end, I realize, but the former five-star had t- his two biggest games to end the season. And yeah, maybe part of that was a little bit of the old, hey, Eric Gilbert, we utilized the tight end. You should totally come to Georgia. Look how much we're throwing at Darnell Washington. Whatever the case, I like think Darnell Washington was actually a pretty good player down the stretch, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. My point is that UGA is loaded with all of these year two guys who could get that much better. I think it's really hard to play that position when you're making the transition to the next level. I think it's really hard to go from high school to college and all of a sudden have to get open against SEC SEC cornerbacks. I think it's really hard to go from college to the NFL and all of a sudden have to try and get separation from NFL cornerbacks. These year two guys though could be the difference. And the timing of this could have been much, much worse. This isn't a Dylan Moses scenario where Dylan Moses is the captain of that defense and he goes down in August and Bama was looking for answers that entire year when that happened a couple of years ago. And they have to all of a sudden force these true freshmen into spots in the front seven that they don't want to do in Nick Saban's defense, but that was the position that they were in. This is in the spring. And now all of a sudden with all these year two guys, there's a ton of competition there. And remember, these year two guys, they didn't get a spring last year. I know it's cliche, I I know that we're gonna see that a lot and that's gonna be a really popular storyline throughout spring ball, but I think that really matters when it comes to wide receivers. Getting on the same page as your quarterback is so important. And it's also kind of important that Georgia's running back room, in case you missed it, arguably the deepest in America. It's really, really good. James Cook, exceptional catching passes out of the backfield, he's gonna make an impact there. UGA has four backs who graded in the top 10 in the SEC in terms of the pro football focus grade if you get rid of the snap minimum. The point is, if I'm telling myself that this is the year for Georgia, that shouldn't necessarily change. Now, if you were a little bit skeptical and saying, well, this is a defense that ranks 126 out of 127 FBS teams in percentage of returning defensive production, and that's why I'm going to hold back and say that they are not going to win a national championship for the first time since 1980, that's your thing. That's fine. There's a part of me, though, that, you know, I I am super bummed that we're not going to see George Pickens, at least for the majority of 2021, barring a miracle comeback. Because I really wanted to see him put it all together. I did. I did. And even if I don't think that his upside was at the level that some do, I I like seeing these guys become complete players and truly figure all those things out. But if anyone is selling their Georgia stock, at least the stock in this Georgia offense, I will happily buy. Pickens' injury, it can't be seen as an excuse for this team. If that's his last college experience, and if he doesn't do the Justin Ross thing, he's gonna have a really strange college legacy because you can't teach some of the things that he does. And I'll never deny that. The way that he can go up and get it, it it is special. And it's fun to watch when he gets rolling and in this offense, he really would have been good. But it would be maddening probably for Georgia fans to look back on his career and realize that this was all they got out of him. Those 300 yard games, two of which happened in bowl games. Maybe it helps that I wasn't as high on George Pickens, I'm still high on this Georgia offense, though, and I think you should be, too. From one former five-star athlete out of the state of Alabama in the 2019 class to another. See what I did there? We, we just connect all of these pieces, all of these pieces. I'm going to back off on something that I said after Gus Malzahn was fired. I said that I thought Bo Nicks wouldn't start another game for Auburn. Oh, no. And I probably should have put the caveat. I mean... I, my mistake, and I don't know why I didn't do this. This is just end-of-season brain being total mush. I should have put the caveat in there. I met the regular season, and I had some people that were tweeting at me. When he started in the bowl game, they are like, you're an idiot, you're already wrong on this, old takes exposed, whatever. If they had actually read the article, they would have saw that I met with the new staff. And my reasons were pretty simple. This was before that they had hired Brian Harson. But you thought, likely, they were going to go with an offensive-minded coach, unless they were going to do the the Kevin Steele thing, which I didn't necessarily think had as much merit. But you assume they were going to go with an offensive-minded coach. And usually those coaches want to start their own guy. And Nick's, of course, was Gus's guy. True and true. New Gus. That was him. Starting him as a true freshman. And in two seasons, though... Bo Nix has yet to be even an average SEC quarterback, and there are a ton of numbers that I can put together and show you why that's the case. I'll get to some of those in a little bit, but I am backing off the original stance, though, because based on what it looks like so far with Brian Harson and Mike Bobo, Nix will, he's going to get the chance to start one last time. That's if I'm betting today. Obviously, a lot of things can change. I am just not sure where they're going to be from now, I'm just not sure that they're going to be willing to make a change like that from now till September. Don't necessarily think that's going to happen. Does that mean that I've had some sort of Bo Nix 180? No, no. It still baffles me to this day that there were people last year coming into the year calling him a Heisman candidate, like respected people in this bus in this business, like Reggie Bush, Rob Stone. They had him as their number four quarterback in America entering the season, as in. Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, someone else, then Bo Nix. They say that opinions can't be wrong. That's a load of crap. That opinion was just wrong. It was just wrong. Nobody who actually watched Bo Nix as a true freshman would have said that. Who would have said that? People who saw the recruiting rankings. People who saw that game winner against Oregon. Even though that was you know, the defense who really made all those stops against Justin Herbert that fueled that people who saw Bo Nix in the Iron Bowl, even though he completed 50% of his passes for 5.8 yards per attempt. By the way, how many times has Bo Nix had six yards per attempt or fewer in a game? 11 times in 24 starts. It's almost half. It's almost half. Basically every other start, he does that. Six yards attempt or fewer in a game. That's not good. And in true road games, Bo Nix averages 5.7 yards per attempt. But wait, it gets worse. Last year, as a passer, Pro Football Focus had him graded 66.4. That was 13th in the SEC. And keep in mind that's just among the qualified guys. Here is a list of SEC quarterbacks who had a better passing grade than Bo Nix: Stetson Bennett the fourth, T.J. Finley, Max Johnson. You like those? Well, both oh, yeah. both your LSU guys. Yeah, Miles Brennan was actually way way ahead of that. I didn't include him in this category. Connor Bazelak, also Colin Hill. That's right. Even Colin Hill had a better passing grade than Bo Nix. Colin Hill, of course, was the guy that Mike Bro- Bobo brought with him from uh, from Colorado State to South Carolina. Bobo wanted his own guy over the incumbent starter and fan favorite Ryan Halinsky, who apparently never picked up the system. There's a lot of weird stories out of Columbia about that. Whatever. Whatever the case, he is now at Northwestern. Colin Hill was benched in favor of the far more mobile Luke Doty at the end of the season. But Mike Bobo did what many offensive coordinators would do in that spot. He came to South Carolina, and he didn't like the quarterback room. He decided, hey, this guy, even though he's injured a lot, Colin Hill, he's a better fit in this offense. I've seen him run it before. So why isn't Mike Bobo doing the exact same thing with Bo Nix at Auburn? Why isn't Bo Nix getting the Ryan Halinsky treatment? Doesn't see? Doesn't he like look at these numbers and see it? Doesn't he see how bad the home road splits are? Doesn't he see the film with Nicks drifting to his right all the time and making far too many throws on the move like he's a shortstop? Well, never say never. I do, however, think that Auburn was legitimately interested in Tyler Shuck. That was the, the Oregon transfer played with my guy, Joel Moorhead there. Brandon Marcello, who knows Auburn as well as anyone, he reported that it was a legitimate possibility that Tyler Shuck was going to go to Auburn. That ends up not happening. He goes to Texas Tech, but... He would have been a grad transfer with three years of eligibility left. Super attractive. Immediate eligibility for Auburn's situation right now seems very important. We don't necessarily know just how hard Auburn pushed for him. There was reports that there was mutual interest. Didn't work out. Now Auburn is sitting there with Bo Nix, a redshirt freshman and a true freshman. That's the quarterback room. Bo Nix is the only one of those three with a pass attempted at the FBS level. Depth is needed and it needed badly. Auburn could still probably go to the transfer portal, find somewhere else, someone else. But remember, there's really not a whole lot out there. Joe Burrow, he was a post spring transfer. Um, the, The market in the transfer portal was not very good up to that point. The problem is that right now, before we get through spring ball, there's really nobody in the transfer portal like that. The market's been super thin. Mackenzie Milton, he was in the transfer portal for 10 days. Yeah, he still has eligibility, but That was December 3rd through the 13th. He committed to Florida State the same day that Gus was fired. Jack Cohn, eh, I don't know. He's benched at Wisconsin. And hey, Ryan Alinsky. Oh, that's right. Mike Bobo doesn't like Ryan Alinsky. Those guys all got power five homes. Here are the top rated guys available in the transfer portal. Nicosi Perry from Miami. Joe Milton, Michigan. Tate Martell, Miami. Yeah. A lot of Tate Martell references lately, it seems like. Scroll down the list, you'll see our good buddy, neighbor Terry Wilson on there. But are any of those guys stepping in and beating out Bo Nix? I doubt it. He's the most experienced SEC quarterback right now. It's not like there's a Malik Willis gem sitting there in that group. That's right. If I'm not gonna make a Bo Nix rant, you know that I'm gonna bring up something about Malik Willis. You know it. That's coming from someone who, look, I sold my Bo Nick stock rather, somewhere between, I think it was like November of his freshman year where I was just like, no, I don't really wanna buy all, I'm not buying in on this. So naturally the coaching staff, they're gonna praise Bo Nix. I always say, don't present a problem without providing a solution. Nick's right now, I think he's a bit of a problem, but does Auburn have a solution? Mike Bobo called uh, the true freshman kid, Davis. He's like, he's a yoked up (laughs) 5'11". In other words, if this guy gets a shot, he's going to be able to take a hit. So that's the good news, Auburn fans. But Bobo and Brian Harson, they're going to try and fix Bo Nix. That includes making him a better pocket passer. I know, search Bo Nix pocket on Twitter. Oh boy, that's a rabbit hole. Um, the comments from, from spring practice, that's, that's part of it. Bo Nix said, I want to be consistent, especially from the pocket. Uh, you think that that got lost in the shuffle because of Nix's other comment that went pretty viral. You know, the whole thing where he's like, yeah, if people were going to talk bad about Jesus, they're definitely going to talk bad about me. All right. That's, That's definitely one way to look at it. Here's how I look at this though. Bo Nix might be in the camp of too far gone he really could be that's part of there's there's like this this part of me that thinks we're just seeing Jared Garantano 2.0 that is a guy who has three new offenses in his first three years of college and it looks like the game just doesn't really slow down for him he's a tough tough dude can never take that away from him but he just like never really became that guy what should Auburn staff hope for with Bo I think this is going to sound lower than what some of those expectations are. And there are going to be people who hear this and say, that's absurd. He can be better than that. I think your best hope is that he becomes the 2020 version of Kellen Mond. That is a smart decision maker. He knows when to run as well. He can get rid of the ball quickly. And he doesn't take those bad sacks. That if he becomes 2020 Kellen Mond, he finally becomes someone who gets rid of those awful, home road splits. I mean, they're terrible. Kellen Mond last year, say what you want. If you were out on him and you were like, look, this guy just isn't who we thought he was going to be. Say what you want. But he became one of the league's better quarterbacks last year. He also never got hurt and he was a true leader in that locker room. Can Bo Nix be that guy? I don't know. I I have my doubts, old habits. They die hard. I've seen two seasons worth of Bo Nix now. I think he's out of excuses. I don't think you can blame this on chad morris anymore i don't think you can blame this on the offensive line and the turnover there he's got pro football focus's top returning running back in america in tank bigsby auburn is probably going to see a lot more of these loaded boxes too even though you know you don't have seth williams and anthony schwartz anymore you're not necessarily going to see teams dropping into coverage a whole lot against auburn they're going to dare bo Nix to throw the ball Mike Bobo actually said that they're going to be going under center a lot more this year. Get ready to see a lot more of that in college football. Offensive coordinators, it's like they all met up at some conference and they're like, hey, did you guys know that throwing out of 12 personnel is easiest and we should all do that? Nick's apparently looks pretty good doing that. We're going to see Bo Nix take some snaps under center this year. It's going to be weird. Bo Nix is at their mercy. He said that he was excited to learn new things. He's confident that they're going to put him in good spots. Will they? I don't know. I honestly have no ideas. Probably can't be worse than what Chad Morris did. Putting him in some of those spots was just terrible. And I, I go back to that Jordan Rodgers breakdown where he's looking at their their protections and how bad it was in that game against Georgia. And he said, if they don't change their protections, it's not going to matter who's on that other sideline. Bonix isn't going to have much of a chance. And as we've seen with the way that he gets skittish and that he eliminates half the field, that was a recipe for disaster. Fixing Bo Nix would look great for the new staff. It really would. It would look good if you took the former five-star quarterback and he figured it out under your tutelage. It would allow Mike Bobo and Brian Harson to be able to recruit well. It probably would help with future transfers as well because in a way, there's some of that element here with Bo Nix having to learn this new offense. There's irony in the fact that Bo Nix is going from Gus Malzahn to Brian Harson slash Mike Bobo. Gus, of course, wrote the book on the no-huddle hurry up offense. And Mike Bobo, he poured some pretty cold water on the hurry-up offense last fall. He said it was leading to fundamentals going downhill. I I went back to the Florida game and I looked at <laughs> I looked at that drive log. Oh my gosh. And it was, it's even, it's almost even worse to go back and just look at the numbers as opposed to watching it in person. Because I made the reference last year when you watched that drive in person where in South Carolina is down 38 to 24 and you get this feeling and will I think we're, we're relatively like punctual people. We like to be on time. It's like when you're with that person who is always late to everything, but you're dependent on them and you have this nervous feeling of like, Hey, we need to be at this place in 10 minutes. You need to like get dressed and, and, you need to brush your teeth right now. We got to go. My brother's like that. It's the worst thing in the world. My wife says I'm a little bit like that too. I don't think I'm as like that, uh, like that as much as he is. Whatever, that's beside the point. But that Florida game last year, that drive log, 18 plays, 75 yards. In a nutshell, you look at that, you're like, hey, that's pretty good, successful drive. But then you remember there was eight minutes left in that game and there were down two touchdowns. And that drive lasted seven minutes and 23 seconds, and they got zero points out of it. Anyways, I think about that way too much when I think about Mike Bobo telling me about the hurry-up offense and how it's not the best thing for the sport. Tough look. I don't know what the proper pace is for Bo Nix. Sometimes I thought he rushed some throws. I thought he needed to slow down. Maybe this is going to be good for him. Maybe it's going to be good that he's going to get to go under center, and he's going to be able to kind of do something a little bit different. I do believe, though, that his leash right now is significantly shorter than it's been in the past. Year one with a new coaching staff, if Auburn is out of division contention and the offense is sputtering and it just doesn't look like Bo Nix is getting it, that coaching staff doesn't owe him anything. They can turn to Davis. They can move toward the future. Nix is getting this shot because of the flashes that he has shown. And he has shown those flashes. I won't deny that. It's not that the five-star potential isn't still there. And we're probably gonna have moments where we see it in 2021. But this feels like his last chance to live up to those expectations. It really does. Will, we've texted about Bo Nicks a lot. You've got some thoughts on this, I know you do.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is just, this is the SEC football I fell in love with, man. This is 2007 message board, you know, Mike Bobo. This is a quarterback who's a fine young man who has a great family. And that's (laughs) kind of it. He was a great recruit. And like I said, this is just, this is Apex SEC football. This is what we love to see. Because he's fun. At the end of the day, Bo Nix is never boring. Watching Bo Nix will either make you laugh, it'll make you cry, depending on which side of the sideline you're on. I'm excited about it. And, And I'm also excited to see... I think we're pretty much on the same side of everything, but or like going into this year with quarterbacks, there will inadvertently be one quarterback that we just vehemently disagree on, and I can't wait to say to see who that will be for this season.
0: Because last year it was Kyle Trask. Yes. We got into many, many text fights about Kyle Trask, um, to the point where there was like a full day. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just not gonna text Will. I don't want to hear the Kyle Trask stuff. I think it was right after it had to have been right after the Cotton Bowl. Was it right after the Cotton? No, it might have even been after the LSU game. Whatever the case, we've disagreed on quarterbacks in the past. Bo Nix has a lot to show, I think, to convert people. And we hold him to this standard because he's the former five-star guy. And when you start as a true freshman and you show those flashes, you think we're gonna get that all the time, but it just doesn't always work out like that. Let's go to my interview with Bear Felica. Like I said, I mean, The guy is just, he's a human encyclopedia. Uh, When it comes to gambling trends, he is such a great follow on Twitter. uh, Always does his homework. Dude dropped a ton of knowledge ahead of the Sweet 16. He's going to make you a little bit of money. So here is Bear Felica. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is ESPN's Chris Bear Felica. Bear is the man for all things gambling. Usually we're talking football picks, talking a little college game day, but... Today, we are I know because you're all over those hoops lines this time of year, so I wanted to be able to get into some of the madness. I'm curious because you do such a great job of digging into the individual games, and for those who aren't following you on Twitter for some reason, definitely should be, uh, but you get into all the lines, the, the gambling trends and whatnot. Do you just bet on games individually this time of year, or do you actually go, go in and fill out a bracket?
1: Um, I actually hadn't filled out a bracket until about 1130 at night before the first night before the first day of the tournament. And I probably shouldn't have filled out a bracket based on having, um, Illinois and Purdue in in the final four. So that kind of hasn't Mm. worked out too well for me. So I probably just should have stayed with the strategy of, uh, looking at teams to win regions and betting some games individually and some live bets and some props within the tournament as well. So yeah, the, uh, uh, the, the, the bracket I wasn't very motivated to do it until late. I was busy with the with the with the move, so I didn't have a ton of time. And then finally, like 11 o'clock on uh, I guess it would have been Thursday night. I was like, oh okay, you know what? Let me let me do it. I, I, and then should have should have just uh, followed through and, and not done it at all. But no, it's it's fun. You gotta, it's a tournament. You got to fill out a bracket, don't you?
0: I, I mean, I think so. I, I don't like the Darren Revell approach of the world, the people who just kind of shoot that down and, and say that it's it's stupid. I imagine, though, with you, it's a little bit weird, though, because you probably run into that thing where you have, like, the buddies who use your information to make their picks. Do you run into that problem on a yearly basis?
1: Um, I mean, I get asked a lot of information. It was funny. Someone had asked me about what I would liked, and I'm like, yeah, I like Utah State to beat to beat texas tech and that was one of the first games of the day and that was uh that that obviously didn't i got i got like the the smirking uh emoji response from him uh, late on on friday afternoon but after that it went well but yeah a lot of people you know i I don't mind i I put whatever like bracket trends and information out there that i have and obviously some of it is more actionable and useful uh than others so people want to use it that's fine if not then then, uh, and then not even all of it, but there was something this year that I but uh, North Carolina and Wisconsin about the Tar Heels uh, not losing a first-round game, and Roy Williams not losing a first-round game, and UNC winning 17 straight first-round games, and, and like, Wisconsin was one of my best bets in the first round. So uh, a lot of times uh, I'll, I'll put the information out there just as kind of like a historical type note. Like I've told many people, like my background is in research and statistics and information. So uh, I'm naturally just going to be looking up historical stuff for, uh, for the sake of doing it. It's not all necessarily having a, uh, a who am I picking type spin to it.
0: So, along those lines, and you mentioned it before with some of the live betting, before we dig into some specific individual games here, I think this tournament has shown with the way the teams shoot the three ball now, the tempo that they play at, it seems like you can go to the bathroom with the team down two, and then you come out and it's like a 16-point game. I mean, has that changed the way that you approach things when it comes to like live betting and some of these over-unders?
1: Yeah, I think it does, especially with over-unders. I mean, uh, getting close to, to the end of games, uh, I think obviously that certainly has a uh, a big factor to it. But, yeah, you, the, the way these games are played, the way these games have been officiated, uh, it's been very tightly officiated. A lot, a lot of calls, a lot of free throws, uh, a lot of three-point shots. So I, I, I think the trend that I have noticed uh, in the way these games have played out is that uh, you still had a lot of, of uh, first-round, first-half-unders uh in that, but it seems like the second half things have uh have really picked up, which kind of makes sense when you when you base, when you base it on that teams ultimately are gonna uh, play themselves into the game get a little more loose get, get better looks you're gonna get more fouls within that that and then um, uh, the way the end of the games goes you're gonna you're gonna get teams uh hacked to try and get back into the game.
0: Yeah, the live betting, it just seems like such a brutal mm-hmm. thing to have to go through now. I, I can't imagine, like if you were live betting that, that Alabama game early on, I mean, what what could have suggested all right, boom, they're they're gonna pick it up because Petty looked like he was ice cold still to start off the game, and you're just like, all right, this is going to be kind of another grind. This is just what Alabama sort of does. And then they go on a run like that, and you're just like, wow, I feel like an idiot if I didn't you know, see that coming a mile away and there's something that you do. But, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. an important thing to, to remember this time of year. Do you, do you try and, like, look for those runs?
1: Yeah, I, I do. it. And I was just going to say one game where it was successful for me is, I, I think a lot of times it's kind of counterintuitive in a situation like the Oregon-Iowa game, for example. Mm. They were going nuts. And at one point, I I saw the live total jump up to like 183.5. And I'm like, that's that's high. And and that was when I decided to to jump in because I'm like, you know what? This is probably going to be about as high as this total gets. And if nothing else, I have the upper end of a – uh, of an end where I can maybe jump back in later and maybe uh, try and find a middle, which, uh, uh, another game, which I did, that was the, uh, the, uh, Christian, uh, UCLA game. Like mm-hmm. I jumped in one well, like, of and it was the other, like they're just not scoring. Like Abilene Christian has may not hit 47, which I was joking that I think forty seven and a half was the, the the team total over under for lowest points in the tournament. By a team, and I'm like they might not get there. And I think at one point in the second half, uh, I saw like one, one seventeen and a half or one eighteen or something like that. And I'm like I'm, I'm gonna play under it because uh, it, I know it worse. This is gonna come down to even more, and I'll definitely have a, a buyback to, to maybe find a middle. and try to I back in it. At uh, over one eleven and a half, and it wound up landing at one twelve, so it worked out great. But, but it's, it's kind of like counterintuitive to to what you see. All because team are scoring now doesn't necessarily mean they're going to keep going.
0: True. Leave it to a Will champ coach team to you know find a way to. the, <laughs>
1: and the, <other> <laughs> the way, I mean, I mean the coach. And, 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 and was I wrong? I mean, I looked up and I'm like, no, I'm like, I didn't. I'm like, I'm like, you got to be I'm like that. Dude is a dead ringer for Champ. <laughs>
0: It's striking. It is absolutely striking. Everybody's making the joke at the same time, but you know that that's one of those things where you're just like, okay, I, I can't see that guy winning the national championship looking exactly like Will Muschamp. As exciting <laughs> as it was in the Texas game, it just wasn't going to happen for him. Um, explain something to me. I, I am all aboard the Mustbus. bus. But when that line for the Arkansas-Texas Tech game came out, and Arkansas is a two-point dog, is a three-seed, I thought that was weird. And then you actually confirmed some of that that weirdness because you mm-hmm. tweeted out, like, U- USC-Kansas, which was another 6-3 matchup, first time in 17 years that a six was favored over a three. And then people will respond to you by saying, oh, yeah, Arkansas is also an underdog. Yeah. And then so you yeah. added that game as well, which adds to some of the context. Yeah. I think we saw what happened with Kansas <laughs> and USC where it's like, all right, we understand why USC is the favorite. But... Arkansas and the way that game played out, you know, that just to me was still weird from the jump. Why was that game such an exception? And was it just sort of the the Chris Beard dynamic there?
1: I I think it was the Chris Beard dynamic and the fact that Arkansas struggled with Colgate for a while, uh, I I think it was was, was certainly a a, a little bit of that. And and the fact that Arkansas is prone to go into some scoring droughts. And we we saw that in the the Colgate game and then the start. And then we certainly saw it in the second half of the uh, of the Texas Tech game. But in terms of USC, um, USC and Loyola is another team. I, I think people who uh, – I guarantee you there are a lot of people who made a good bit of money uh, this weekend just kind of blindly following Ken Palm because if you look at Ken Palm's ratings, uh, USC is sixth in Ken Palm's ratings and they're a six seed. Uh, Loyola, I think, was ninth in Ken Palm's ratings and they're an eight seed. So uh, the, if you're just kind of following the, the analytics of it and the, and the Ken Palm efficiencies and, and power ratings, uh, you uh, you did pretty well because you had four games that were, uh, for the most part, no-sweat winners, and you weren't laying more than five and a half, six points in any of the game in a couple instances. And uh, with the instance against Illinois, you were a dog, and you won, and you won by a couple digits. So uh, uh, a lot of times these numbers are... A little weird, just because the the seed numbers aren't necessarily indicative of a true team's power and strength.
0: Along those lines, Arkansas's next game against Earl Roberts, handicapping a 15 seed, it seems next to impossible, especially at this stage. But it, it sort of feels like the odds makers are they're they're already sort of bracing for that fall back to earth. Even though, as you put on on Twitter. Oral Roberts, first team to win outright in consecutive games to start the tournament as a nine point dog since Chattanooga in 1997, which I think that just missed the TO era. I think that just missed that. But um, I, I mean, they're, they're pretty much daring you to take those 10 and a half points or 11, whatever that line is now. Is that is that one of those where you would just stay super far away from and, and just be like, all right, I don't want to touch a 15 seed. Or do you kind of look at that line and say there is a an obvious play here?
1: I, I think it's a, I think if you stay away from a a pre-tip bet, but I, I, as it was for me with UCL Abilene Christian, and then once that game got started, it was like, all right, this is, this is a blowout, and then it's like, lay it, lay it, lay it, repeat, repeat, repeat mm. during the game. And, and I think that's kind of the same situation here is I'll wait and see, because they did play, what, an 11-point game uh, earlier this year, and a lot of times in the tournament as well, uh, you've had four previous instances, which is, again, it isn't a huge sample size, but the fact that this is the exact same situation, so you're dealing with the same types of teams. Um, you've had four previous instances where you've had a team win each of its first two games by six points, or under 64, or under 32, and uh, win as a six point dog or more. And then in the Sweet 16, the four teams that did that didn't play a one seed in the sweet 16 all four of them wound up covering and dayton wound up beating stanford outright in 2014 so you've got oral roberts you've got oregon state so that might be something where you just might want to just file it away in the back of your head maybe not don't feel so great about automatically thinking that this run is going to come to an end and these teams are going to get blown out uh because they they've been dogs in the first couple of games and uh, here here's a spot where they're facing a tougher team and the favorite just going to roll. I just want to just hold off and wait and see how the game's playing out.
0: And along those, I mean, like as you as you talk about that, that makes me think that over under watching that is going to be fascinating because I think it started off something like 162.5, which was, I mean, that's insanely high. And then it's, it's been bet down to, uh, I believe 159. Last I checked Creighton Gonzaga, only other game in the sweet 16 that's in the same ballpark as that. So two part question here. One, just how absurd is that? Because that seems like a ton of points, even though know, we talk about, you know, the Iowa, Oregon games of the world. And, and then two is, do you know the highest over that you've ever taken in a college basketball game and not live maybe but maybe a pregame over that you've taken?
1: It it probably mid 160s I would think. Maybe like yeah. 165, 166 or so somewhere around there. Uh I, I I don't know but but I can't imagine it would have been any higher than that. I mean, I know obviously this is the the biggest spread in the in the Sweet 16 game since uh the Kentucky team that blew out West Virginia in 2015, but I, I just don't see Creighton getting very many stops here at all. I, I think Gonzaga can score in the post pretty much whenever they want. And I don't know if I'd want to lay the 13 and 13 and a half here, but, but this feels like the type of game that could be in, in, an over-type game. And again, this might be a situation where maybe you can, if you don't want to lay go over that big number now, maybe you wait a little bit and 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 you see what happens in the first couple of minutes of the game, maybe you get to the first TV timeout, and it's 4-4. And maybe you'll be able to buy it down a couple points and and get a little bit better number than, than, than what you'd be able to get right now.
0: Gonzaga seems like an interesting team to live bet too, especially the way you see what the, like the way that they start off against Oklahoma, where if you're watching that game early, I think they fell behind eight or something like that. And you're thinking to yourself, one seed going to probably tighten up a little bit and then they just get going and they get after. And that, that's a testament to how good, Zaga really is and the way that they they can just light up points in a hurry from a variety of guys but you know I think um, it's, and, and this doesn't necessarily fall in that camp but the, the stat that you threw out Dating back to 2012, double-digit seeds facing single-digit seeds have covered 10 of the last 12 games, but the seven before that, they didn't cover any of those. I read that, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's you know, basketball is a game of runs, and even when it comes to betting, half of the Sweet 16 matchups are exactly that. That is a double-digit seed facing a single-digit seed. Would you favor the recent trend, or is that your way of saying that you expect this to flip?
1: I would probably favor the recent trend, just because I, I think I think it's because of the way teams kind of play now. Uh, I think you're looking at teams maybe getting up and maybe you kind of empty the bench, knowing that you've got a trip to the Final Four on the line in the next round. Um, maybe you're looking at a, a backdoor type situation. So I, I would I would probably, if I had to read anything into it. I might lean towards the uh, the recency, the, the, the recent part of it, uh, in, in terms of some of these uh, these underdogs covering. I, I think of the of the two, I would feel more confident. I think in Oral Roberts covering uh, against yeah. Arkansas than I would um, Creighton covering against Gonzaga because I, I I just don't see how Creighton is going to be able to match up with them in the post at all.
0: Yeah, UCLA-Bama, another one of those games. Double-digit seed, facing Mm -hmm. single-digit seed. Bama, as Mark Turgeon said, fifth one seed, if you want to believe that or not. I mean, Bama looked really, really good. And I'm sure that the public looks at a game like that and thinks, okay, that's who they're automatically going to be the rest of the tournament. Obviously, we know that that's not how it plays out. That line starts at Bama minus 4.5. But last I checked, it was something like Bama minus 6. Bama looking that good which obviously explains the line movement, is now the time when you would zag and say the public is overvaluing Alabama's performance, or are we perhaps in line for a number, another Bama blowout and you're willing
1: to lay those points? I already got it in Alabama minus five and a half. And uh, I, I, worry, I worry a little bit. at uh, time you have to see a team who just goes completely nuts and hits everything from outside, I'd usually be a little hesitant in Backing them like that in the next in the next round, but this is more a play against UCLA for me than anything else. The the Pac-12 has been a great story, winning all those games as an underdog, getting getting four teams to the Sweet 16. But I think a lot of that has to do, certainly in the case of UCLA, with it was just a perfect type bracket. Michigan State blowing that lead in the play-in game. Sure, UCLA had to score points. To come back and win, but Michigan State gave that game away. Then they got the most overseeded team in the tournament in BYU, uh, who was a six seed somehow in the first round, uh, and, and that was a predictable result. How BYU was favored in that game, I have no idea. And then they got arguably the worst team ever to win an NCAA tournament game at <laughs> in Abilene Christian in the round of 32 uh, for a trip to the Sweet 16. So that while they clearly are an athletic team, who can score. Uh, this, is, this is a dangerous spot, I think, because uh, you're going against an Alabama team that defends. Uh, if they hit shots close to the way they did the other night, it's going to be very, very hard, I think, for UCLA to, uh, to, to, to pull an upset and hang around here.
0: Yeah, something tells me Bama's not scoring 47 points against UCLA, no matter what. I think we can uh, no. we can safely assume that's going to be a little bit of a tougher go in that regard. How much, how much do you pay attention to that individual conference success? Like, do you look at the, what happened in the first weekend and you say, well, the Pac-12 is, is obviously better than we thought. And that doesn't always necessarily mean that's the case. It just means that they've had the better tournament. I know Jay Billis likes to talk about that a lot and how with the Big Ten, it wasn't necessarily that the Big Ten was overrated all year. It was that the Big Ten just simply had a very bad week and that that's what's happened so far but does that factor into your mindset before making a bet and being like hey well you know if this pac-12 team like a usc is maybe better than what we thought they were and the conference has proven to be good does that bolster them up or are you like hey no we got to look at just individual matchups and not necessarily let that play a factor in that
1: no i I had usc actually in in the elite eight in my Bracket. That's like the one thing I always write about having a USC Oregon game uh, in in the Sweet 16. Um, I I don't really like looking at it. I I look at the tournament is so matchup driven, and you you look at the USC team. Like I said, like the evidence was there based on their performance this year, and and like like I alluded to earlier with the Ken Palm rating, like having them at six shows that they are. The, the numbers and the analytics think very highly of USC. It's a team that uh, just defends and clean looks are not easy to come by. Uh, USC UCLA was a little bit different. I mentioned because of their draw. Oregon had a little bit of the same temp, same thing in uh, getting the the buy or the the, the the walkover into the second round uh, because of BC. and then they faced a team that just. Couldn't defend them. I mean, it, it was just a mismatch. And give Dana Altman credit; it was like, okay, we're just, we're just, we don't care about it. our our best is better than their best, and we're going to go and, and just run them off the court. What they did, uh, Oregon State has been a little bit of both. I mean, it, it's amazing with Oregon State because this is a team back in December that lost consecutive games to Washington State, Portland, and Wyoming. And, and somehow here they are in Tennessee just shot themselves completely out of the game at the start. And it was yep. never a game. And that really, I don't think was a surprise to, to me because I liked Oregon state in that game uh, based on Tennessee's ab- inability to, to score at times. I was surprised that they were able to back it up and come out and put together a huge first half run to kind of separate themselves from 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 Oklahoma state and, take a couple of body blows throughout that game is to be uh the Cowboys rather got it down to, down to three, a couple of times and uh, they were able to hang on in the wing, but I still saw a lot of warning signs in that game from Oregon state about, I mean, they are another team that can get a very sloppy with the ball and a very fortunate couple of shots from guys that really, they hadn't been delivering much throughout the year. So, Uh, The the game against Loyola will be very interesting because Porter Mosier is is one hell of a coach and I I think he will do a really, really good job uh, breaking down that Oregon State. I'll be surprised if Oregon State comes in there and plays some zone to try and uh, eliminate some of the the, the motion and the the cuts and stuff that, that Loyola has just thrived on so far
0: the futures for the national championship after the opening weekend. I I think they're fascinating to look at. And the odds makers are usually pretty good with these. I saw Sports Betting Dime had, you know, three one seeds at the top, whereas Gonzaga plus 33, Baylor plus 500, Michigan plus 750. But then right after that, it wasn't a two seed. You know, you didn't have Houston or Alabama or even Florida State there. And I think Florida State is better than a four seed. They just seem like hell to play for 40 minutes. But, they had Loyola Chicago at plus fourteen hundred. You're essentially picking like a one, team, like one team to hit a, a four game parlay at this point. Um, I, I'm not sure if you've had time to gauge those yet, or if you usually just stay far and far away from those futures. But if you have, what would what would your strategy be, or what exactly would would pique your interest?
1: One one thing that I did look at and play was in Loyola's region. I was surprised that Houston was favored still to win that region. I know they have a two next to their name and Loyola has an eight next to their name. But if you've watched that region and those teams so far of the four teams remaining, you could very easily argue and and make the case that Houston has been uh, the least impressive. And I don't want to say worse because they're in the sweet 16, but I think you could say the performances by Oregon state Loyola, and Syracuse have been better than what we've seen from, from Houston so far. So I, I kind of took a, a two-pronged approach in that region, and I bet Loyola to win the region at, like, plus 180, and I bet Syracuse to win the region at, like, plus 600. Uh, so I, I'm going to uh, hopefully – hopefully I get uh, Loyola and Syracuse meeting each other in the uh, in the Elite Eight, and I'm good. But if Syracuse happens to lose to Houston, hopefully Loyola can win um, uh, against Oregon State. And I have those two. So that was the one – uh, bit of bit of future play that i that i did play i already have a ticket on on Gonzaga to get to the final four uh, i have a florida state ticket to uh to win the national championship at around oh, 28 to one or so so i don't know how many how many futures i'm going to wind up playing other than that uh at this point i'll probably just uh focus on some individual games i, I guess the one thing maybe i could play would be a uh a USC Oregon type deal where I'm sure they're both right around six or seven to one to to win that region and just kind of I wanted to hedge my like Gonzaga ticket, which I really don't see any reason why I would want to, but could just maybe play maybe play something live or play one of those teams plus the points uh, against Gonzaga in the Elite Eight if I wanted to do that. So, but in term in terms of like title futures right now, may, maybe the one team that might be a little overvalued that overvalued but undervalued might be Michigan uh, just because the uh, livers, I um, mean, he might come back. And I think Pete, that, that price is probably a, a little bit inflated just because of his injury. But uh, that's a team credit to Michigan credit to Villanova, who lost great players and just the culture and the coaching staffs of those programs and the players, of those programs were, were able to overcome that and put together a couple of really good because that, that LSU Michigan game was a big boy game. And uh, that, was, that was quite an effort by Michigan to be able to come back uh, a couple of times after getting a couple of haymakers from LSU to be able to come back and win that game.
0: Gosh, Michigan having to go back-to-back with LSU and Florida State. I mean, that is, that is going to be battle-tested. That, that's the one caveat that seems, uh, that seems really tough. Did you get, when did you get, rather, the Gonzaga ticket? Because if you're just getting that at the start of the tournament, I imagine that's a little bit different than if you had picked that you know, back in December or something like that.
1: Oh, no, I I just played Gonzaga to get to it before the before the tournament uh, when the, when the bracket came out. I just I just decided to because that was one of those. I mean, I had said how I thought that that was uh, the easiest region that uh, easiest path to the final four, and obviously the two, three, and four seeds are gone who they've already beaten during the course of the year, and I think I think they're around two two forty or two fifty or so maybe to win the region, and uh, I was like, yeah, this is it, it, at the very worst, I'll be able to. They'll be close to a double-digit favorite in the Elite Eight, and they could potentially take a dog if I wanted to, uh, plus the points to, to try and win both or whatever. But yeah, I, I, just didn't, I just don't see uh, as athletic as USC and Oregon are, and as much of a pain in the, you know, what they are to play, and as much as Mobley could kind of contest some shots in the interior against Gonzaga, I just, I just have a hard time thinking, that, that thinking Gonzaga is not going to win that region now.
0: Last question, and I know it's one that uh, you and your co-host, Stanford Steve, are plenty familiar with. What is the worst March Madness beat that you've ever suffered?
1: Probably the, uh, the, the Duke game, the, the Duke uh, half-court meaningless three-pointer in the Final Four against UConn was probably the, uh, the, the, the ATS one that, that, that rang the most it was in 2005s of the year of. That 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 UConn wind up beating Georgia Tech in the final. No, no, 2005 oh, was right. North Carolina Illinois. 2005 was North Carolina Illinois, I think. And that might be so 2004, but 2004, I think it was was uh we, was at UConn Duke, and it was the two kicked the uh that, that long shot to 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 backdoor the, uh, the the one and a half. So that was a uh, that was a brutal one. That was. That was really, really tough. I, I will say this: Oklahoma State money line against Oregon State. Well, that wasn't a bad beat. That one stung. <laughs> that one did a lot of damage. That one wiped. That one wiped out a a couple of really, really good days.
0: Gosh, and that one too. I mean, because Oklahoma State comes back on that run, and you're like, all right, Kate Cunningham scored like six points in two seconds, whatever it was, and you're thinking to yourself, they're going to make this this run, and to to come up short yeah. on that. I mean.
1: Well, yeah, oh, once God they got man. it, once they got, once they, once they got it to three. They, honestly, in the first half, I thought the game was over. I was, I was tweeting some stuff, and people were yelling at me because it was the first half. <laughs> but, but I was like, "There's, there's no reverse." Like, like, well, like, what makes you believe right now Oklahoma State is going to come back and win this game? Like, I, I mean, there was no evidence based on how, how they were playing, especially on the defensive end of the things. And uh, once they got it to three, I was like, "All right." And then they had a, a couple, like, three straight possessions where. Like Cunningham didn't even like take a shot. Like flavors is chucking bricks. I I was like, how how are you like not letting this? That's another thing. Like like I I don't know how how much NBA you watch. I mean, I don't watch a ton of it. I mean, but like there are seriously NBA teams out there that are going to take Cunningham over Suggs or Mobley. I mean, not, not based on what I've seen. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, the shot making was not at the level I thought it was going to be. And admittedly, I'm, I'm one of those people that I watch way more college basketball in the last few weeks just because of the nature of you know covering college football year round. But I, I thought the same exact thing with Cunningham and just some of the stuff that you're like, all right, I can see it. he can create his own shot. But the way that you know, you would expect someone to be able to shoot in that moment um, you know, didn't ex- exactly inspire the, the most confidence there. Oh, one last question for you, last last question. What's the first thing you're going to say to Corso the next time you get to see him in person?
1: I will I will go up to him and I and I will continue our annual, annual tradition and I will get up close and I'll kind of whisper in you whisper in you in, in the in the ear like like who you got and it was that we had, that was our little we have a little thing where like the first time we see each other on on Friday morning at our meeting we'll come up and he's like who, who do you got who and it's like our little like for the country club type like who's your who's your best bet of the week so it'll it'll definitely be that but but, but by the way I is Georgia like the most cursed program in the country?
2: Oh like, man! Uh, you talk,
1: so, like you talk, you talk about. Again, I haven't gone down rosters and really and and, and dived into much of that yet. But there might not be a more important, irreplaceable player to a to an offensive success than that guy. Like, like they got nobody at receiver after him no no one pre- I mean, he was everything we, we finally saw like what he and JT Daniels did at the end of last year was was incredible and I know they got some young tight ends in the mix but boy that that, that stung to uh to see that happen this morning because it, this was shaping up as one of those years where everything kind of was going to fall into place for Georgia because they had Clemson in the opener and if they won that game they were dealing with house money and uh, they had a little bit of like breathing room or a buffer, even if they lost that game, you just you run back through the SEC and you're still back in the mix. And now with, without him, like that is just a brutal, brutal loss. And and, and I feel for him and I feel for uh, uh, the Georgia team because they certainly were going to be in a position this year, I think, uh, to make a uh, to make a deep deep run and potentially get uh, back to the playoff this year.
0: Okay, Bear. So I'm I'm so glad you said that because you don't know this, but on the front end of this 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 episode, which will come out Wednesday night Thursday morning, I actually bang the drum and say, "Oh, well, Georgia losing George Pickens as tough as that is, and don't get it, don't get it twisted. Extremely talented player was going to be really exciting to watch with J T. Daniels, Todd Monkens' offense, all of those things." I actually think that they have some good weapons that, that could who could make that year two jump with Burton and I, I love some of the young guys too and they get Dominique Blaylock back from injury and they get this kid Roseme Jack Saint coming back he had that brutal injury mm-hmm. against Florida like I actually think that they do have a lot of those young and Washington's
1: weapons I, mean, I mean I mean he's gonna be mm-hmm. I mean, I mean that, you tell, it, it was it was funny I was joking with a, uh, a buddy of mine that that was probably like the uh, we're gonna throw to the tight end like every play. In the bowl game is like a uh, is like a recruiting pitch to Eric Gilbert to see if he's going to transfer to Georgia. See, see we used the, we use the tight ends. Now come on home, come on back to Georgia.
0: It was not a coincidence that Darnell Washington had his two biggest games of his college career um, to, to end to end that season as a little recruiting recruiting pitch to <laughs> to Eric Gilbert. But uh, yeah, we're gonna I'm gonna have to bring you back on like a few months from now. Maybe the Georgia hype train will be a little bit faster. I don't know. We'll have a little bit more time to be able to kind of process the Pickens injury and just everything because in my opinion, there's no bigger storyline, more fascinating storyline in college football than whether or not is going to be able to win a national championship this year. And I know we'll be talking a lot about it, but this uh, this has been really, really great. I hope this is able to help out a lot of people. Um, like I said, would love to have you back on in a few months. We'll talk some game day, talk some football when you've had a chance to be able to dig into rosters. But uh, yeah, best of luck on the hoops bets and uh, and the pony bets and we'll, uh, we'll talk soon.
1: Appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. look forward to, uh, to coming out again as we get closer to football.
0: Excellent. Take care, man. Okay, bud. Well, we've got a very topical subject for figuring out today. We're talking March Madness heartbreak, but I also want to get to handling NCAA tournament heartbreak as an adult um, because I think it changes a little bit. And that's, that's what we try and do here, figuring it out. I, I always grew up loving March Madness like that was that was my favorite thing as a kid Like I, I truly fell in love with it 2002 that was um, Maryland Indiana National Championship that year We were on spring break in Arizona and I had two weeks off Because what was it? Oh, yeah, it was my mom's spring break. My mom's a teacher So we took her spring break and then we came back after a week in Arizona and then I had my school spring break off, so it was that in itself was awesome. But my days were oh gosh, it's I mean that's an all you don't forget about that that type of that type of trip. My days were spring training baseball, hang out at the pool, and then oh yeah, that was also the trip where Moises Alou was staying next door to us. That was really weird. I think I've told that story on this podcast. A lot of loud music coming from Moises Alou's like Villa, condo, whatever that was. And at night, though, we would watch the NCAA tournament. And believe it or not, I actually rooted against Indiana in that national championship. I didn't grow up in the state of Indiana, and I loved Marilyn Juan Dixon back in the day. I rooted against Indiana, though, because Indiana messed up my bracket. Tom Coverdale, Jared Jeffries. In hindsight, I cringe at that as an adult. Like, it was... Probably the only sniff that Indiana was going to get in the post-Bob Knight era of a national championship, although there's an example later that I'll bring up. I also sort of cringe at the fact that I was such a diehard fan for Illinois 2005. D Brown, Luther Head, Darren Williams, that team was unreal. I remember that team thinking they just looked like they chucked threes the entire game, and then I went back and looked at the numbers. They only made 8.8 a game. There's... 50 teams in division one who now make at least that many threes per game basketball's changed a little bit but anyway uh illinois indiana obviously they become rivals the most devastated that i've been as a fan in march madness 2013 indiana syracuse sweet 16 indiana's preseason number one number one seed in the tournament as well victor oladipo cody zeller yogi ferrell jordan holes christian Watford. And then they run into the Syracuse zone and they just fall apart. They had a week to prepare for Syracuse. Wasn't one of these like, oh, it's the second game of the weekend thing and you got a day and it's just not quite there. They had a week to get ready and it looked like they were stunned that they played the zone. It's like they've been doing this for decades. They scored 50 points in that game. Never had a shot. Also brutal because my family had come out to see me in Nebraska where I just started a new job. And first job out of college, so I actually got to like watch the game with my family and you know, they're like my parents are rooting for Indiana. My, my brother wasn't cause that's who my brother is and he's an Illinois guy. Um, but after this game on a Thursday night, I had to work too. So I worked like a full shift in newspaper business, worked till you know like one in the morning, whatever it was. And I was like bummed that night, like really, really bummed. Like seeing that title window, I've talked about that before. When you see the title window close, it sucks. And that's why there are there are guys in this profession like Tom Crean and Mark Rick who get fired. See what I did there? Little Georgia connection. Wow. Um, you see all this talent, and then you're just like, oh, that's as far as you can take it, and that's that's about all we can do. But anyways, um, Will, before we go to the responses from the Facebook group, what's the March Madness devastation that stands out for you?
2: So for me, it was the so <laughs> background. One of my uh, Best friends in high school uh, was a Kentucky fan. And they like, you know, adopted me into Kentucky fandom because LSU just wasn't very good. And it was they were old school Kentucky fans. Like back like his dad went to Kentucky in like I want to say the 70s. He was an older dude, uh, maybe even like the 60s. And I remember that team with you know John Wall, Boogie Cousins, like just that all-star team. And I believe they lost to West Virginia. It was uh it was a it was a Bob Huggins. West Virginia. Team. Yep, yep. And I just remember watching that and like my my perception of reality was just because I correctly knew, you know, because my friend's dad was that message board old dude. Like, ev- everybody knows this guy. He was the one who was in on the John Wall recruitment, on the Boogie Cousins recruitment, and he w- we were in a group text, and he was like, this is the year, boys. Boys, this is the year. And, like, we knew at the time how good these guys were going to be in the NBA because, obviously, I mean, we watched all their highlights and everything. I'd say John Wall is the first athlete that I watched all the way through, and so I just love that team because they were really fun to watch, and I remember just that image of um uh huggins just like looking at one of his players eyes and saying like oh my god we did it and me just being crushed and like you said retrospectively it's like that was a cool moment you know what i'm saying like kentucky was the empire and these guys were like the the plucky rebels and so yeah i mean that was a good moment for college basketball did they play that game at the carrier dome that's That's info i don't
1: have
0: that that was the first time so i remember being kentucky played indiana that year at assembly hall and John Wall had this dunk and I'm not sure if you can YouTube if it's on YouTube it probably is. Wherein he took off, I swear it was like he was coming in transition and he's like at the right elbow and he takes off from just inside there and dunks it with his left hand. And it was the first time in my life where I remember being at a basketball game and being floored that a human being like that could exist and I could exist in the same space as them. Right. And and that's when you're like, okay, you can get excited for a game against Kentucky. That was back when like Indiana was you know, coming off of sanctions, Kelvin Sampson era, all that stuff, and the roster was just crap. And you're like, yo, you're, you're telling yourself that this team could do this, this team could do this, and then you see those guys come out. And you're like, oh, this is a little bit different. Just a little bit different. Um, I'm also, so like the, the different degrees of March Madness, like I've got a lot of these where, these, these weekends, where I, I just remember ripping up my brackets super early And then it would ruin my entire watching experience of the rest of the tournament. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that one, 2010 was was another example of that. Um, I'd get so mad because when I was growing up, I watched more college hoops than anyone in my pool. And then I would sit there and be so angry when my, when (laughs) my team who would win the national championship would get knocked out. And now I get bummed in a less like rageful way. Like when Villanova lost to Wisconsin, second round game 2017, I had a moment where I was super sad, but then I was actually able to still enjoy the tournament and it was fun. 2010 though, that tournament, the one that you bring up where, where Kentucky lost to West Virginia, the 2010 tournament, I remember it was near the it was near the end of spring break, and I had just come back to my parents' house after visiting my, my buddies at Illinois State, and it was a, it was like late on Saturday afternoon, and um so we're still in recovery mode at that time, very much in recovery mode. And uh, I was gonna be driving back to Indiana the next day, I believe, I'm pretty sure, because I started back up on Monday. And I had Kansas winning it all. And then Ali for Oakmanesh, Northern Iowa. He yep. decided he was just never gonna miss another shot. And I was I was so I was so pissed off. <laughs> Gosh, I was I was a nightmare to be around. Um and I definitely let that impact my my mood for the rest of the tournament. Like I, I was so jaded that I couldn't even feel good about like rooting for Butler against Duke, even though that whole thing was just straight out of a movie and I was just jaded the rest of the and I was terrible but like that happens and it happens to people sometimes with the brackets but listen enough man, about me
2: listen man I'm telling <laughs> y'all rip your brackets up early and then just root for chaos that's the way to do it
0: let's go to the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group thank you to everybody who answered que- who answered our question in figuring it out let's start with Michael Darkey he says um, that's March sadness stories by the way we're recapping here Michael says, Michigan losing to the Louisville team in the Natty, which was later vacated because Patino, <laughs> the slimiest lizard person in college basketball. I love slimiest lizard person. That's that's a rare distinction to be able to have. Patino fits the description very, very well. And he got a lot of face time during that game against Alabama. I know that there are there's, I saw some of the, the stuff about, oh, those former players are coming back to root for him. And, you know, what a cool story. This would be a Patino would win as a 15 seed. I'm like, mm, would it? Would it? <laughs> and how long would that win be allowed to stand? And it would be vacated at Iona. Um, but whatever. Uh, thank you, Michael, for that response. Uh, and then he also added, but the opposite of heartbreak is when Florida lost to Earl Roberts. Yeah. Goodness, poor Florida fans. I feel for you because that was just the Mike White experience in a (laughs) nutshell. Golly, to go from feeling so good about, hey, we're going to get to the second weekend. And that's a big deal. I I think we, we, we sometimes overlook that about how difficult it is, but how good it can be for your program when you're able to actually get that extra week of like, hey, you know, uh, four you know all we got to do is win four more games. We're we're champs and oh it's a it's a fourteen tournament to get to the final four and you get all these good things written about you and you're more in the national spotlight. Florida would have had that but oh my gosh what a what a collapse on the stretch in that game. That was just absolutely terrible and to have it happen to a 15 seed that's awful awful stuff. The the funny thing um, about the
2: Oral Roberts stuff too is like I love the this is just so peak Twitter is like everyone made a billion oral jokes and then a couple hours went by and we found out that they were like a fundamentalist Christian school. And then people were like, no, we can't root for them. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, all right, like yeah. I just like to stay above all that and just not care. But it's just very funny that like, that's where our national discourse went.
0: I wonder what it's like. And this is, uh, this is dating back to my newspaper days, having to make those headlines all the time. <laughs> if you are a local newspaper covering Oral Roberts, my goodness. Talk about walking on eggshells all the time and having to check yourself because you can't, you can't be that person. You're getting a call from the university president if something like that happens. You don't want that. You don't want that. Um, this one from uh, Christopher, I'm going to butcher your last name, man. Reach out to me. Tell me how to pronounce your last name. I think it's Christopher Shaker. The CZ. It just always throws me off. It's C Z A C H O R. Anyway, Christopher, he says, uh, on day one of the 2018 tournament, I had picked every game correctly up until the last game when Arizona was blown out by Buffalo. I had Arizona winning the whole thing. DeAndre Ayton, man. Nate Oates. <laughs> Nate Oats had the plan to be able to shut down DeAndre Ayton. That was one of those games, too, where just like the Cade Cunningham thing, where everybody falls in love with the person who's going to be a lottery pick, and they know that one player, so they want to just kind of like be able to follow along and root for him. Um, that's a, that's a very popular, like, oh, I, I, watch NBA and now I'm coming down to like fill out a bracket and all that stuff. But gosh, that was the game when I realized, oh, this Nate Oates guy, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. He's probably going to get a bigger, better job. And sure enough, I mean, goodness gracious, guy is, guy is the face of the future at Alabama. No doubt about it. Jay Woody. Jay says, uh, I don't put a lot into basketball normally. I subscribe to Bill Cosby's theory. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Where are you going with this, Um, I subscribe to Bill Cosby's theory that every game should start 100 to 100 with two minutes left. I'd watch it then. Okay, all right, we dodged a bullet there. Um, But he said, but I have to say that I don't know if I've ever messed a bracket up as bad as I did this year. It looks like my four-year-old picked the teams. I clearly know nothing about basketball, that is all. Oh, no, wait, he added this. Oh, you know what? I do have one. How could I forget? 2008 Memphis, Kansas for the national championship. Memphis is up by nine with two minutes left. Two minutes! And Kansas flipping comes back and ties it, then wins it overtime. Shout out Mario Chalmers. Uh, Made me physically ill, seriously. And I remember saying, oh, well, next year we lose Derrick Rose, but I'm sure Cal will stock up again. What a time to be a Tiger. And then Kentucky called. That sucks. That... (sighs) If you're if you're a diehard Memphis fan, and I do Memphis radio every Tuesday, so I actually deal with my fair share of like a like a Memphis crowd, um, and I just got to think that that's one of the toughest losses ever in sports to swallow. Like ever when you look back on that, and you know just how good Derrick Rose was, and knowing that it was just all sitting right there, and if you just made your free throws, you just made your free throws. But Cal, I remember one time said if I can make a list of. 30 teams or 30 things that i would prioritize for for my team to be able to like learn figure out practice free throw shooting would be number 31 ah wise so yeah um maybe not maybe not because it cost him a national title but whatever um and then kobe black uh he piggybacked on that and said has to be memphis kansas and the natty lifelong memphian that's what they say. And basketball is a huge part of the city's culture. That Tigers team was one for the ages, led by De Rose. I just remember ESPN picking against them every time they moved along in the tournament, making it past teams like Michigan State, Texas, and the UCLA team featuring Russell Westbrook and Kevin Love. Our dreams were shattered when we lost in overtime after being up nine. And Memphians can still hear Calipari's response to their poor free throw shooting. We'll make them when we need them. Ironically, we would have had to vacate the title anyway. <laughs> Teflon John was allegedly having other people take tests for D-Rose to keep him eligible.
2: You know. It happens. Well, it happens. Not to do like this whole thing, but that goes back to like uh, Michael Dark's point too. Is like you have these programs, you know, that just kind of get away with everything. And then you have these other fr- programs, you know, shout out Memphis or Will Wade, where it's like, oh, you guys are Satan since you're, you're cheating. And it's like they'll find a way to just make, you know. T- talking about Dickie V out there just, like, slandering Cal back in the day and then coming around to like him. Same thing with Patino Gives Patino all these passes because he was at Kentucky. And it's just, as a smaller, you know, team fan like Memphis, I can understand being like, man, like, we finally got this shot, man. And, like, same thing with Michigan. It's like, man, we were right there. And then look what stopped us, the NCAA. <laughs> that's
0: a that's a, a really weird thing to look back on, though, because I think if you're one of these people that says, you have to play it by the book. Uh, I totally understand that, totally understand that. But the vacating the banners thing is just such a weird thing in college basketball that they do and that they try and and make you feel weird about it. That's the whole point. Right. It's not so that, you know, they want you to feel awkward about that season. That's the entire reason that that exists. And it's not because, oh, we're trying to tell these kids you're responsible for this problem. It's, well, you know, we need to make sure that the institution at least has some sort of pause or people can make fun of them and say that they cheated and that they actually didn't deserve that. That's what the NCAA does. They just want to make you feel awkward. And they managed to do that at every single turn. Noah Sims, April sixth, twenty nineteen, last minute of the final four against UVA. Uh, he says particularly the officiating. After Auburn made a run nobody saw coming, I still have irrational rage against all UVA fans, students, and athletes. <laughs> I may be a pessimist, but I believe that was the peak for Auburn men's basketball. I don't know you're going to get many cracks like that. This tournament is so hard. It is so, so difficult to get that deep. And let's be honest, like, Auburn got screwed. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. Even a diehard Alabama fan can watch that game and say, yeah, Auburn got screwed. There's no doubt. That's perfectly understandable. That's a very realistic way to go about it. Or not realistic, but it's a sensible way to go about it. To understand just how important that was. Because when you're Auburn and you don't have that historical success and you see that moment just flash before your eyes and that Auburn run was fun. Don't get it twisted. It was great. That team was a lot of fun to watch and they could really light it up from deep Bryce Brown. Um, but I, I think that that is a, as, as you talk about like you're, you're an LSU guy when you are this program that, you know, maybe once every quarter century, we feel like we have a legitimate chance to win a national championship. And then to see it end like that. Mm-mm. Nope. Do not wish that on anyone. Well, I'll say this too. It's like,
2: whatever, wherever you are, you know, today and tomorrow is better than you've been. So, I mean, with Bruce Pearl, I mean how Ooh. can how can you not love Bruce Pearl, man? And it's like the height of their program was, you know, Chuck Person and, and Charles Barkley and back in the day, and those teams were fun, they were good. But look at what he's building over there, man. You get, you know, an NBA guy about every year. As long as and it goes back to the dumb thing with him at Tennessee with the NCAA, it's like as long as the NCAA doesn't just decide to victimize him for no reason, they're gonna be fine. And they're building something really special. Same thing with Nate Oates. And it's like, it's just a really great time to be an SEC basketball fan, period, man. So I wouldn't be too bummed out about that.
0: That's true. That's true. And I do think that it seems like we've we've had these random one-off runs where Auburn a couple years ago, South Carolina four years ago, where it feels like the random football school that catches it at the right time. But this year with Bama and Arkansas feels different. It, it feels different. It feels like these two programs are able to, to sustain it. And like you said, Auburn is another one of those where if they can avoid some massive penalty from the NCAA, yeah, you like their their outlook long term. But man, I mean, gosh, making it to a Final Four is just it is such a different ball game. And this tournament is just such a random, very often random collection of unlucky bounces. And you appreciate these moments. Arkansas fans, Alabama fans savor it savor it right now because there's just no guarantee weird things happen you just you just never know if you have not yet please please leave us a five-star review like subscribe go subscribe to our newsletter go subscribe to the newest podcast from saturday down south college football uncensored go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts just because the weekday madness isn't there this week it doesn't mean you should stop procrastinating at work. I got a little tip. Hey, you can't watch basketball at the end of the week? Go to SaturdayDownSouth.com. Waste an afternoon. We have a million stories on SDS right now. There is no shortage of great college coverage, college basketball, college football. We get spring football updates. We've got draft stuff. We've got college baseball. Everything is there. SaturdayDownSouth.com. I say it all the time. Enjoy the Sweet 16. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.